All right. Well, we uh, we ended last week. Kind of, we we've introduced this idea of critical theory and and what it is, what it was from its beginning, and what what it is. And uh, I talked about uh, the Frankfurt School and uh, how that developed in Germany and came into the United States through Columbia University in New York and then Grandeis University in California. And there was a phrase that I used that was uh, their phrase uh, explaining how they were going to bring their ideas into uh, Western civilization. Who remembers what that was? What was the goal and how did they state it? Yeah, Caleb. Yeah, pretty close. It was a long march through the institutions, right? We have a long view here. This is something that's going to take time, and we're going to do this by marching through the institutions of Western civilization. And so that's going to be the academy. It's going to be media, uh, journalism, um, entertainment, all of these things, uh, and eventually even the church. And so we saw kind of the development of this historically. I'm not going to rehash all of everything we, uh, we discussed last week, but we kind of got a, we got a little bit into the conversation of how these ideas uh, continue to be this outflow of this, this sort of Marxist ideal of what things should be according to them. And in doing so, we, we talked about uh, what sort of this idea of a utopian society would look like and, uh, and what, they, uh, what they sought to accomplish um, in this long march. And so uh, we, we ended last time talking about the ideas of a man named Marcuse uh, who was uh, in his book, One Dimensional Man, talking about this idea of, of needs and how we think about needs, and specifically, uh, he was talking about this in relationship uh, to capitalism and to how this capitalistic, uh, these capitalistic ideas of the West, he believed, were so repressive and so overbearing that all of us are repressed, all of us are uh, sort of victims of the system, and yet we don't even realize it because we have been so uh, duped by this, this whole thing. And so the result, in his mind, was that uh, we are all unhappy, ultimately, uh, that most of us um, need to, um, to see what's going on so that we can ultimately get to this place where we join uh, the revolution, right? We, we, get, we get together and we... We buck the system, if you will. And so uh, we need to get away from these false needs, these ideas of false needs that we have as consumers. And remember, the, the picture that we painted was uh, from him that basically our lives consist of being born into a world where immediately we're exposed to uh, this false sense that we always need to be uh, consuming. I need to work, make money so that I can go and consume more. I need to work and make money so I can go on my next vacation. But it's always about what's next based on what I've gained, what I've earned by this work that I do, which is ultimately detached from any true meaning. 
So we need to, according to Marcuse, according to the Frankfurt School, get away from that. And he believed, ultimately, that the United States was this repressive, totalitarian regime, not in the same way as like North Korea or Cuba or China, but through hyper-technological progress. Now, we're moving so fast and furious in terms of progress because of capitalism (laughs) that we're progressing so quickly that that is what is harming us and so that we need to pull back, we need to slow down, essentially hit pause and figure out all of the effects of this on mankind. Now, again, as we mentioned last time, I'll get to you in a sec, um, is there any truth to what is being said here? Is there a sense in any way that maybe there's some things before we just go headlong into them that we should probably slow down and start to think about a little bit? I think so. <laughs> right, these, I, I, was, uh, I was listening to an interview recently with uh, Elon Musk, the CEO of Tesla. Well, he was. I, don't, I think he lost that position. <laughs> but um, uh, the guy is crazy. He's got all these crazy ideas, but he's brilliant. And uh, sometimes the most brilliant people are the craziest people, and, and that's how God's designed that, I guess. But, um, but he, was, he was raising ideas, all kinds of things that I've never even thought about, that I said, you know, he's, he's probably right. We probably need to think about the ramifications of this a little bit with things like virtual reality and, uh, and what that's... Um, the fear is that people are going to... This virtual reality is going to become so real They're going to go into the virtual reality space and stay there for weeks at a time, that they're just not going to come out of that. And that's, think of, imagine a world where we all live uh, in this virtual space that's not real. Okay. Yeah, it's a a frightening thought uh, that... In general, humanity would get to a place where we're actually living more in a fake environment than in reality, right? So there's some questions we need to stop and ask, right? When, when cloning became a big thing, uh, this was, what, late 90s, early 2000s, when Dolly the sheep was being cloned, and, um, and a few people were saying, you know, we should probably think about this before we continue. There's a lot of ethical questions that need to come with this hyper-technological advance. I agree. I think that's important. We need to consider those things along the way. And yet, uh, to say that in and of itself is evil and false and wrong, so therefore we need to do away with it, is, um, I'm going to argue, a step too far with all this. Go ahead. Okay. Well, there we go. (laughs) Um, And one of the other things we we kind of... uh, ended with last week was uh, talking about this long march through the institutions getting into academia and what that looks like, what that has looked like in the last uh, uh, couple of decades with regard to uh, this emphasis, this push for, uh, for the Marxist idea that you go to school to, uh, why? So that you can learn how to do something, one thing, that is going to contribute to the needs of, of everyone else. And so we sort of have this hybrid mix of our natural inclination is to want to, uh, our, all of us naturally want, we want to learn. I've never met anyone who says, ah, I don't want to learn anything about anything. 
Now, we go about that different ways. Some are more lazy than others in doing that. But in general, we, we actually want to learn things. And from our learning, we want to see that turn into something that is of, of use, of benefit, uh, primarily to ourselves and our families, but also to our community, to our society. And, um, and so the, the ideal, though, is, is, is that in ourselves being, is, is conflicting with this sort of principle being pushed that you have a skill that you are sort of, you figure out right when you're old enough to walk and talk, and we're going to develop that into you so that you can do that and, and contribute to society because everyone has a job to do. You have a role to play. So do that thing, and whatever that thing is, if you're a, if you're a baker, you're going to bake goods, and those goods are going to be distributed to everyone. And, and, uh, and that's going to um, be everyone's needs being met in terms of the bakery, right? And, and in turn, they're going to do something. They're going to be the tire changer. And so when you need your tires changed, they're going to change your tires. And in exchange, uh, they get the bread from you and, and just in every industry, right? So we need to indoctrinate that sort of idea from the get-go. And how is that going to happen? Well, we need you to go through our institutions that we've taken over. And so everyone must, without question, without fail, from third grade on, you must be thinking about going to college, right? I have to go to college. Now, it's not, it's college, it's not a bad thing. My goodness, I've been in school my entire life, <laughs> still going. <laughs> like, I'm not, I'm not saying anything wrong with people being educated and continuing to do that. But what's the purpose? What's the reason um, our reasoning for that as individuals and families, as parents thinking about our kids, is a lot different than the people who are generally the ones educating our children, to be quite honest. There is a, there is a, a program there that they're, they're trying to fulfill. It's why 98% of university staff, professors, administration, everything else, are um, extremely left and not I'm not just talking politically I'm talking philosophically socially um, and many identifying uh, straight up as Marxists we should ask questions about that right we should be thinking about why that is because it's all a part of this uh, this move to get people to think this way that these principles would be uh, enacted so what do we say with regard to the nature of man? What has to be true about man's nature in order for these things to even come close to maybe working out in the way that they think they're going to work out? Okay, well, man's worth, certainly, and we would agree on that, that man is mankind, not to leave women out, mankind is inherently worthy, right? Yeah. It has to be true that mankind is essentially good if any of this is going to work out, right? Because something is going to be introduced when my, uh, my, bed, my bread that I'm baking becomes more valuable to you than the tires that you're changing, right? What's going to happen? Well, all of a sudden we're going to introduce, well, okay, you can have the bread, but you're going to have to change all four tires instead of two of them for one loaf, right? Now, all of a sudden, I'm already introducing some competition here. Um, so if, if man is not in himself inherently good, 
according to this way of thinking, uh, they're going to run into all the problems that they already see. Because what's the big, what's the big issue here? That there's this divide, right? That there are people who are oppressing and there are people who are oppressed. There's victims and victimizers, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, and this, this constant struggle between these two. And what did we say the big problem that they wanted to identify was? The word that starts with C, it's right at, Yes, competition, right? The problem isn't man, the problem is competition. Well, how does competition get introduced? Through man. And so, really, at the heart of this, what we're seeing is, is the greatest flaw to the whole ideology is the view of mankind, right? What is at the heart of man? And then when we try to answer that, how do we deal with the results of that? Well, this is, this is the question that any, uh, any religion, any philosophy seeks to answer. It's certainly the one that uh, Christianity deals with at great length. And so we have, to, uh, what, we have to continue to think about that. So if this struggle is between the oppressed and the oppressor, what is the supposed desired outcome? That we would achieve what, ultimately, by going through this process of revolution? Equality. That this discrepancy, this disparity would be equaled out. (coughs) Um, Now, if you listen closely, what you're going to hear in discussions, cultural discussions, and if you've not heard this, then I'm sorry, I've just made your... I've tuned your ears into it, now you're going to hear it all the time. It's like when you buy a white... Honda Pilot, you've never seen one before, and then you start driving one, and everyone else is driving one now, too. Um, It's sort of that kind of thing. You're going to start hearing this all the time. Um, You, and you're going to identify it using, uh, that's often using language that doesn't actually mean what uh, you think it means. So, for example, uh, there's a lot of talk about equal opportunities and equal rights, now, on the surface, none of us, hopefully, would disagree with the idea that we should have equal opportunities and equal rights. I hope. I think we can all agree on that. Um, but what people are really talking about is not equal opportunities and equal rights. What this idea is propagating is equal outcomes. Not that we all have the same opportunities in our cultural environment to do the same kinds of things based on our our skills, our aptitude, our education, whatever, all these various factors that play into that. It's that the outcome would be the same, right? Now, is that a biblical concept? Is the idea of equal outcome a biblical concept? I see a lot of head shaking. No, anyone want to comment on that? Okay. Yeah. Good. Good. Any any examples you can think of? Yeah, Russ, go. Okay. Good. Yeah, we're going to read that in a little bit. Exactly, the parable of the talents. You reap what you sow. We see these kind this kind of language all throughout Scripture, right? Um, so the idea that we would have an equal outcome 
What does, that, what does that actually do if you start to try and implement that in society? Okay. It eliminates incentives, right? Why, why would I go, why would I work 70 hours a week if I can work five hours a week and get the same result, right? There's uh, my favorite comedian. You hear about him all the time, Brian Regan. He has this great sketch where he's talking about when he played baseball, he played in the outfield as a little kid, and he hated it, uh, but his parents wanted him to play. But he knew whether he played half the game or the whole game, either way, he got a, he got a whole snow cone at the end. <laughs> and so I could play half game or whole game, still get a whole snow cone. I want to play half the game. <laughs> right, it's that idea. I, whether I work for five minutes or for 50 hours... Same outcome, right? Incentive is gone. Why would anyone want to do otherwise? And we talked about uh, an example uh, in Cuba last week with what that looks like. So <coughs> uh, the idea in itself is coming out in a, as a part of our conversation. And it's quite disconcerting, in my opinion, if you know what you're listening for, um, because <coughs> there are a lot of Christians starting to use this language. Now, I do believe that people in general who have this idea are well-intentioned. Why? Because uh, specifically as Christians, we do desire to see good done for our neighbor, right? Hopefully. <laughs> We're loving our neighbors, and, uh, and sometimes that's a really difficult thing to do. And you can just sit down with one of our deacons and have a conversation about how difficult that is. Because sometimes people come to the church asking for things, and our initial desire is to want to help them however we can, but oftentimes the help that people need is not the things that they initially want, right? Sometimes the greatest help that we can give to someone, for example, if they're in uh, financial trouble, is not to just give them money, right? Or to even pay their bills necessarily, why? What got, what oftentimes, this isn't always, there are, certain, there are individual cases that differ, but sometimes when people are in that place, why are they there? Okay. So there were habits, there were things going on that, uh, that weren't healthy, right? And so if there's, a, if there's a gaping wound and it's just gushing blood, uh, putting a Band-Aid on, it's not going to be the help that is needed, right? We need to... Uh, we need to get a little bit deeper. We need to sort that problem out a little bit uh, before we just start throwing Band-Aids on things. Now, does that individual, and trust me, we've had our share of people saying, well, we're going to, I see what kind of Christians you are. We're going to expose your church. I'm going to tell everyone about you uh, because you're not giving me what I want. Or what, is, what are they really saying? What I'm entitled to, Right? You owe this to me because you're Christians and you're supposed to love your neighbors. And if you don't give me what I think that I need, then you aren't doing what you say you're going to do. You're not being Christian. Well, where does that idea come from? That that's what it means to be Christian. Well, that's part of it, yeah. They're very well versed in biblical and systematic theology. <laughs> where does that idea come from? Yeah, yeah. a wrong view 
of God, a wrong view of humanity, a wrong view, I would say, of, of love and what love actually is, right? Um, yeah. Right. Right, if the government will do it, then certainly the church should be doing it, right? That's, I mean, all the more true. So, <clears throat> I think there's a, a, for Christians anyway, there's a well-intentioned desire behind wanting to just help people. I just want to help people. I, I, I think that's a good thing. However, in doing so, often we've embraced this collectivist, redistributive view of, um, of all kinds of things, whether it's political, economic, social, whatever, that has often become uh, the idea that has been taken on by the church. And I will say that I believe the church in the West has, has squandered <laughs> countless amounts of money uh, just doing this without any kind of plan, without any kind of idea, any way of thinking through whether or not we're actually hurting the people that we're trying to help. There's a whole series of books. Uh, our deacons all have to read them before becoming deacons uh, uh, called when, when Helping Hurts. Because oftentimes our best and most well-intentioned efforts to help people are actually hurting them because we're perpetuating and enabling them to continue to do uh, the destructive things they've been doing to get them to where they are. And there's ways of thinking through that. And it's never easy. We could, we could read 50,000 pages of case examples of this happening and then the first time we have to try it, uh, we didn't read about that example because everything's different. Every individual, every family is different, but we need to work through these principles. So we need to connect biblical truth uh, to working these things out. So is it true that all of us in the eyes of God are equal? Yeah, okay, good. I, I, it was quiet too long there. <laughs> it is true in the eyes of God that all of mankind is equal. Uh, and when we're talking about that, we're saying whether you're a man or a woman, whether you're black or white or Hispanic or Asian, um, you know, wh- whatever it is, as humanity, we, no one person is created more superior than the other. Regardless of if you're a Christian or not, right? Now, that being the case, uh, we might want to say, well, why should, I, um, why should I then actively or passively take part in any system that requires that in the end some are going to end up with better circumstances, better outcomes than others? If we're all equal in the eyes of God with regard to our humanity, then why would I ever take, play, take part in any um, system that didn't also end with equal outcomes. And that's the mentality that is created, right? And so you hear this kind of talk when people compare the church in the West to the rest of the world. Oftentimes people will say, we have so much money, we have so much wealth, instead of building buildings and paying pastors and all these things, we should be giving it all away. Just give it away. Now, I don't know if you've ever paid much attention to what giving money away to third world nations has achieved, but uh, if you think it's achieved much by way of good, I hate to burst your bubble, it only makes corrupt 
people more corrupt, and it only impoverishes the impoverished even more. The answer for the church to help the world is not to continue to redistribute the Western wealth. It doesn't work. It's been proven over and over again. In fact, personal example, right after in 2009, right after the earthquake in Haiti, was that 2009? 2010. Um, Felicia and I went down a week or two after the earthquake. Um, she wanted she went to do medical work and I just wanted to be able to minister to people there. <coughs> I met a guy and I said, what do you do for a living? And he says, well, I was a plumber. So what do you mean you were a plumber? He said, well, I was working as a plumber, but we, have the, we had the earthquake and now all of you people are here. Okay, what do you mean by that? Well, I can stand in line over there and get my medical care. I can stand in line over here and get my food. Um, I can go over here and get my tent for my family. Um, in other words, he was explaining to me there was no longer a need to work. Why? Because it was all being given. It was all being provided. Well, that's, again, I, I don't blame this man or uh, anyone initially thinking that way, but it's something that's being perpetuated by this constant sort of idea of this is how we do things. Now, that was an emergency situation. It was a disaster. There was certainly a need to go and to provide immediate relief. And sometimes that does look like spending a bunch of money to do these things. However, when that comes at the ex- to the extent where all these years later, let me tell you, Haiti is a great example of this, They have more missionary efforts thrown at them than any other nation in the world per capita. And yet, to this day, after two decades of that, remains one of the poorest, most impoverished, most corrupt nations in the world. Right. (laughs) There's nothing to plumb. Right. Well, again, and think, think of... Why do we, in providing aid and things like this, why do we need to back up and think about the bigger picture? Because oftentimes when people are in those situations, what are they thinking of? They're thinking of right here, right now. The next moment, the next day, I just need to get these needs met. And so if I can do that without working, and not, I don't have any long-term plan. And so this works for me now. So I'm going to quit work. I'm just going to get what I can. And that's more efficient. That's more effective than going to work all day and having to work all week to get a paycheck to go buy these things when I can just stand in line and get it for free. So I think as we think about those things, we realize like there's this, this process of thinking that oftentimes doesn't go, for most of us, hopefully, it goes beyond the end of the day today. <laughs> We're thinking a week, a month, a year down the road, and, uh, and we have a way of getting there. So, um, Now, again, we, we talked about this idea of equality, but equality doesn't mean that all of us are exactly alike, right? And that's a good thing. The diversity that God has created in humanity is a good and a right thing. That also doesn't mean there's equality of authority and responsibility, right? Uh, I would hope that even the most ardent Marxist wouldn't say that a father and a son have uh, level equality in terms of how things are going to go within the home, for example. 
Uh, If so, you're going to have a big problem. Uh, In our society, uh, this idea of distinction is in so many different ways. A father and his children, a mother and her children, a boss and their employee. Um, There's all kinds of relationships. And sometimes it's not that there's an authority structure or that one has... Uh, is, is over another person, but it can be uh, just a difference in gifts. Think of the local church, right? We all, the, the thing the Bible teaches is that all of us have different gifts, and that doesn't mean that one is uh, necessarily more important or more significant than the other. It's just that they're different and that God has given those to us. So if you think, of, uh, of a pastoral gifting that God has given is different uh, than uh, the gifting of, of one who, uh, who is uh, gifted for the diaconate or something along those lines. Um, those are different. That doesn't mean one is more important, more significant uh, than the other. It's just how God has gifted us. And if we want to eliminate that and say that No, all of us. So all of us need to think of equality in terms of uh, we're just going to rotate. On Sunday mornings, we're just going to rotate, and all of us are going to take our turns to go stand back there and and preach to everyone else. Um, Does that freak anyone out? (laughs) Some of you are like, well, it would probably be better than what we get now. (laughs) I just wanted to preemptively strike because I knew it was coming. I've heard enough of these things. <laughs> but this distinction's always been made, right? The fact that this differentiation exists, I can assure you, and if you don't believe me, just ask my wife, it doesn't mean I'm a better Christian than you that God has called me to be a pastor. I can assure you that's not the case. <laughs> what it does mean is that he's given us different roles. It doesn't give a boss carte blanche uh, to intimidate or mistreat his workers. It doesn't give a father the right to abuse or neglect his son. Right? So this idea of being equal in the eyes of God in terms of our humanity does not mean that there is uh, equality in terms of our roles. Right? There is distinctions to be made. Even among celestial beings, God gave uh, certain angels in heaven different roles to play, various degrees of reward and accolade. Um, Think of us as God's people. Uh, How does the Bible describe us? As God's, what kind of people? A chosen people. He's, He's talked about that from the beginning of time. God has always had a chosen people in His plan of redemption. Think of Jesus. He had multitudes that followed him among those multitudes how many did he pour all of his the greatest amount of his time into 12 and even among those 12 he had three that he really dedicated himself to right does that mean he didn't care about the other multitudes no but it did mean that there was a distinction being made and so if this idea of equal outcome was god's plan i would say biblically had a really strange way of showing it Now, you might say, well, maybe we're just cherry-picking some ideas from the Bible to come to our conclusions. Um, Maybe we're just forcing some kind of economic, political view into our religious view. But I want to show you 
uh, I want to show you from Scripture. So some of this has been discussed, but I think reading the text will be really helpful to us. We have a little time. Go uh, in your Bibles to Luke 19. Luke 19, someone read for us verses 11 through 27, nice and loud. Okay, thank you. Is Jesus promoting an idea of equal distribution of, uh, the, uh, of the income? Not quite, right? In fact, he probably states it in a way that a lot of us would be very uncomfortable stating. Doesn't he? Yeah. Well, the, the idea there is that if they don't work, they don't eat. Yeah, All good. Yeah, good. And that'll come up actually in our, our sermon this morning, this idea that Paul, as, as David's pointing to in, in 2 Thessalonians, Paul says, look, I came and I worked among you so that I wasn't dependent on any of you. And we instructed you that if you have people in your midst that are idle and they're capable of working but they don't, that they shouldn't eat. And that goes back to that principle we were talking about before of how does the church think about helping our neighbors? Well, if we have someone who's just being lazy and yet are fully capable, and that's an important factor because there are people who are not fully capable of working. That's a different scenario. But they're fully capable and yet are just being idle. Uh, They do not get the right Uh, to any goods that would be provided for them in order to eat. So in this parable in Luke 19, what factors were at play? What's going on here? Why, Why in the end didn't Jesus just say, okay, well, you made me a lot, you made me a little bit, you didn't make me anything, so let's put it all together, now I'll equally distribute it. Okay, some worked for the wages, and two did, and one didn't, right? What else? What happened to the poorest of the three men? He was taken from him and he was condemned for lazily squandering his opportunity. And not only that, what does verse 27 say? Right. He's, an, he's identifying this now again as a parable. is teaching a broader principle. But he identifies this person as an enemy of God. Right? Why do you think that is? Why would he use this parable and this principle to identify this lazy individual as an enemy of God? Sure. So there's a lot of things. One, as, as Caleb's saying, he has given him the gift of this opportunity that he has squandered away. And so he's, he's not appreciative. He's not thankful for anything. And in fact, how does he identify God in this parable, who is the the Lord, what does he say about him? He's a severe man. Right. (laughs) Right. He says you reap what you don't sow, and yet it's already already his. Yeah. That's a good word. That's exactly what's going on. There's a heart of contempt behind this, right? That you owe this to me was the attitude that was given, right? Um, we don't have time to go there, but Matthew 20, if you want to read another similar uh, parable, we have this landowner who unevenly distributes work and compensation, and he silences those who complain about this by reminding them that the land belongs to whom? To him. 
And it's his money, and it's his decision to do with those things what he wishes. Yeah. Right. Sure, they all got the same amount, but the distinction would be who gets to make that determination. Because the argument that the landowner is actually making is, listen, I could have given all of it to one person, and then the rest of you get nothing at all. So that's also, uh, that, that's being implied in all of this. So, sure, the equal distribution idea of it could easily be, but it's, it's not reading the full principle into the story in that the landowner is saying, it's mine, I can do with it exactly what I want. This is what I decided to do, but I could keep it for myself, I could give it to one, I could give it to 50. Um, this isn't about equal distribution, yeah. Right. Well, and it's an individual, right, it's an individual making the decision as opposed to some uh, political, governmental institution. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you you are supposed to do this, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, in many ways. Yeah, and what you're doing, what you end up doing is is in many ways leads us to a place where we we get a sense that it's lacking purpose, it's lacking meaning, it's lacking any kind of worth because I'm, I'm doing this job or whatever it is because I just want to get the maximum amount of, uh, of income with the most minimal amount of work so that I can just sort of entertain myself to death or whatever it is. Yeah, go ahead, Russ. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That, see, the, all of these objections, it's a great point, Russ, that these are the natural tendency of people. Why? Because what, in, in Matthew 20, everyone sort of did their work, and I did this work, and they did this work uh, less than me, but we're getting an equal amount. And what is the natural tendency of man? Uh, we hear it from our kids. That's not fair. Because we have a mindset that uh, something is owed to me, Right? Now, in, in one sense, if you're laboring, things are owed to you, but it's a, it's a barter, it's a trade, it's agreed upon, right, that this is going to happen. But it can just as easily, we can just as easily read this parable as the one who did nothing, arguing uh, if uh, they got nothing, that I should get something because they have more than me, right? I shouldn't have to live in a neighborhood where people have more than I do. We should all be able to have the same thing. Uh, let me give you another example. Sometimes this isn't even thought of, but what is, what is the Eighth Commandment? No, coveting is the Tenth Commandment. Do not steal. Exodus twenty fifteen. you shall not steal. How does that imply, how does that uh, apply to all of this? Okay, good. It implies ownership. Uh, all, uh, all through Scripture from the very beginning on through, we have this implication that man owns stuff. Whether that's land, whether that's goods, whether that is wealth of certain kinds. Right? The idea behind the Eighth Commandment is that someone else has something and I'm not allowed to just take it from them. In other words, I'm not entitled to that. 
So this whole idea, this whole question of redistribution, of equality of outcome, this really gets to the heart of the law of God. That we don't, we don't have a right to someone else's stuff, right? Yeah, uh, that's a big question. But that, I, I think uh, one of the issues you get into there is the, the form of, or the structure of government you're under with a theocracy um, and you have a limited group of people, being the Israelites, on a land that's governed by God, providing, uh, provided that, and there were still distinctions to be made among them, though. Like, there were still people with specific roles and these ideas and principles in place of you don't get to just sit around and every seven years sort of reap all the benefits of Jubilee, that there was still expectations on the people. But... Um, but yeah, it is an interesting concept that there is sort of this, it seems like, yeah, every, every seven years we sort of reset. Right, well, there, there, is a, uh, there is a sense in Marx's principle that there is some, there is some level of ownership. Um, it's that we have the same amount of ownership. Um, so it's not that we don't own anything, it's just that we only own enough that we would, uh, we would be determined to need. And that's part, that second part of their famous, Marx's famous statement, to each according to his need. And so there's a determined, now again, it, this is sort of the part where they sort of detach from reality that you have this class of people who gets to determine what that need is. But when they determine what the need is for everyone, you shouldn't go beyond that. And, and that's something you saw, like, for example, in the Soviet Union. People were being punished when it looked as though they were doing anything beyond what it was determined was their need. If they snuck an extra vegetable at the grocery store, then they would be punished for that because they didn't need that extra one, and that could have gone to someone else. All right, we're out of time. I'll give you a little, um, a little tantalizing um, idea to carry on into next week. Next week, I'm gonna, uh, we're going to uh, kind of put some finishing touches on this discussion about the ideas specifically related to Marxism. Um, I'm going to argue next week that the most biblically principled economic system in the world that the world has ever known is capitalism. And I'm going to argue that from the Bible, I hope. Uh, and you can feel free to disagree with that if you'd like. We'll have a discussion. Um, and, uh, and that's going to continue to deal with these ideas of critical theory and, and Marxism. Uh, but then from there, we're going to shift gears a bit, and we're going to start moving into the ideas of postmodernism and talk about some ideas that have had a really negative influence on the church. Uh, when we get into postmodernism, you'll see exactly why that is. So let's pray. We'll break before worship. Father, thank you again for our time together. I'm grateful for the conversation that we are able to have in peace and love. Uh, and Lord, while um, it seems that for the most part across the board we're agreeing with one another, certainly we, we see there are opportunities here that we could very easily uh, become, um, uh, come to a place where there is a lot of 
uh, consternation. And I'm just so thankful for the body of Christ here, for the love that we share for one another, a desire for unity that we have, that we can think through these ideas, we can think through these principles from the Bible. And I'm also thankful, Lord, that as we, as we look at the world around us, that we're not just thinking in uh, sort of ideas, philosophical, theological ideas, but that they have real implications and real applications in the world around us. And so I pray, Lord, as we continue through this, as we think about these ideas, as we have these conversations with our coworkers, with our neighbors, in our homes, as we listen to the conversation uh, around our own nation and around the world, uh, that we would have biblical answers uh, to difficult challenges and difficult questions. And we're grateful uh, that we're able to have this place where we can have these discussions freely and openly uh, with much unity and patience with one another. We do pray now as we come together in corporate worship that you would meet with us by the power of your Spirit, uh, that we would be edified and encouraged and helped by your word and through our prayers and singing unto you that you'd be pleased in all that we do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.